0: We Shouldn't Talk About This may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This.
1: Well, happy, happy day to you, Key.
0: Yes, and a happy day to you, V. How are you today?
1: Oh, I'm doing great. How about yourself?
0: I am also doing great. That's wonderful.
1: Do you... This may be a little personal, but have you ever been married?
0: Actually, yes. It's a very wild, random story. However, if you look in the den of your house... In the frame where there's like four different pictures of me, there's one of me in a wedding dress and I was like three years old and there's like a little groom beside me and a, like we're cutting a wedding cake.
1: Uh, three, year old, three years old.
0: Yeah, I don't remember why. I remember the wedding because I remember walking down the aisle and it was like myself and another girl and then two little grooms and she went first and then her groom. And then when I was coming up the aisle, her groom like ran back past like to his mom or whatever. And it's weird. Cause like it was my grandfather's church. See the guy that I quote unquote was married to. Like the last time I saw him, I think we were like maybe teenagers, like early teenagers, like 13 ish. But that's the last time I saw him. But I remember his name and everything and hopefully he's doing well
1: wow that's so interesting so you you both didn't even properly do your divorce you just straight ahead and like split up and that's it
0: yeah i have possibly been in a marriage for 30 some odd years
1: wow that is quite fascinating key
0: Yes, yes, very few people know about that, but go look for that picture when we're done recording. It's in there.
1: All right, I sure will. Well, I'm very glad to hear that your spouse did not murder you.
0: I'm glad about that too.
1: I think that's something we should talk about today.
0: How I didn't get murdered by my spouse?
1: No, spouses that did murder.
0: Oh, okay. Well, we can we can definitely talk about that because it seems like the police are usually, you know, very very suspicious of the spouse when someone is murdered or missing. It's like the spouse is always suspect number one.
1: No, that is a it's a very it's a very fair assumption, especially if life insurance is involved.
0: Yes, and I would say. If you're going to do that, don't buy life insurance a week before you commit the murder that is quite suspicious,
1: yes, very, oh my gosh,
0: yes, I mean, give it some years, like let it build, you know, let it seem less obvious
1: yeah, for definitely now i really I really wish I could do the I really wish I did the nanny killer for this one and because she killed a lot of her spouses. <laughs>
0: Like, um, she was just willy nilly with with the killings, like she was crazy,
1: yeah, she killed her husband and his mom, mm.
0: right, like anyone could get it with her,
1: yeah her her uh, grandson because she didn't like his father,
0: right, it was she was just loose loosey goosey with those killings, like she was murdering everybody, if you looked at her wrong, you was going, it was done.
1: Yeah, don't don't cross the giggle, the giggling nanny.
0: Yeah, I wonder if she had, like, a little list, like, oh, like, my daughter said something smart to me today. She has to die. Like, <laughs> she, she was really, really, you, you just didn't want to cross her.
1: Yeah, for anyone interested in what we're talking about, that is episode nine, that we should talk about killer women. And that is Nanny Doss. Wild, wild, wild story.
0: Extremely wild. So, for today, the killer spouses, do you want to go first?
1: Yeah, I think it will.
0: All right, well, let's get to it.
1: Gather around, own children, it's time for Telecrime. And let's take our marching boots and go to Canada.
0: Oh, Canada. I want to go there one
1: day. I want to go there one day also. Yes. Well, this is a very, well, this place probably isn't too popular, but what it's right next to is pretty, pretty popular. And we're going to talk about Evelyn Dick McLean. Well, McLean hyphen Dick. Evelyn was born to Donald and Alexandra McLean on October 13th, 1920. A year after her birth in Beamsville, near Niagara Falls, the family moved to Hamilton, a city within Ontario, Canada. Her father worked for the Hamilton Street Railway, the HSR, as a streetcar conductor. He later a- attended an office position that gave him access to company revenues. This would be important for later. Ella's childhood was not particularly happy. Her father was an alcoholic, and her mother had a terrible temper. The parents didn't get along and often spent time apart. Evelyn didn't associate much with the neighborhood children. Her parents considered her too fragile to be playing out in the streets. Rumors spread that Mr. McLean was dipping into the safe of the HSR. They lived very well and always had large sums in the bank, and would send Evelyn shopping with handfuls of nickels. And just, just sort of the point of reference, in 1928, if Evelyn was eight years old, 50 cents, which is 10 nickels, 50 cents Canadian, would be $7.41 Canadian dollars today.
0: Okay, and then a handful of nickels, that seems torturous, like that's heavy.
1: That is heavy. But it's about, it could have been about 10 bucks, you know, to send her out to get some things.
0: It seems like a lot of responsibility for a child, but okay. (laughs) It was back then.
1: It was back then. It was different. With parental encouragement, Evelyn tried hard to become recognized in the finer circles in town. Her parents pulled her out of public school and sent her to the prestigious Loretto Academy attended by the daughters of Hamilton's elite. She would host lavish parties at the Royal Cogni Hotel, Hamilton's finest, and spend money freely on acquaintances. Her social acceptance was never reciprocated in the way she wanted. The attractive Evelyn became the focus of rumors while still in her mid-teens. She had more expensive jewelry and furs than was considered proper. She spent time and the company of much older men and at places out of town and at the racetracks. In 1942, Evelyn gave birth to a daughter Heather this further fueled rumors Evelyn announced that she was married to a man stationed overseas by the last name of white letter examination and military records failed to prove the existence of such a person in June of 1945 Evelyn Heather and her mother who had recently separated from her father moved into an apartment together in downtown Hamilton after a month or so together Evelyn astounded her mother by announcing that in two weeks she was going to marry John Dick. Her mother had never heard of him. And on October 4, 1945, Evelyn and John were married at the Church of, As- of the Ascension. On Saturday, March 16, 1946, when a group of five children found what they thought looked like a body of a headless pig laying part way down the side of Hamilton's. A scrap mint, or what was called, quote unquote, the mountain, the find proved to be more gruesome. It was, in fact, the torso of an adult man. Oh the my head- gosh. How the kids thought it was a headless pig is beyond me. Because I'm pretty sure that pigs have multiple nipples. How many
0: Maybe- pigs do you know personally?
1: Um, one, a customer, one of my customers used used to have a pet pig, and I met it.
0: Oh. Okay, so then you do have some frame of reference. Carry on.
1: Yeah, this pig was a boy. But anyway, it was, in fact, the torso of an adult male. The head, arms, and leg were, legs were missing and nowhere to be found. A deep wound in the abdomen, a deep wound in the abdomen, told investigators that someone had tried to cut the torso itself in two. An identification of the remains by doctors and a positive ID by his brother-in-law led police to the conclusion that they had found the remains of John Dick, who had just married Evelyn McLean. Dick's cousin, Alexander Kamara, had reported to police that John had been missing since March 6th. He had told them that he became worried when he heard reports of the torso and began to suspect that something awful may have happened to the man who had been living with him since his short-lived marriage had apparently failed. So, I, I don't know where this stems from, but if I'm, but if my cousin had a failed marriage and was spending and was staying with me temporarily, if I hear news of someone's torso being found, I'm not going to suspect that's my cousin. Like, right,
0: what, that's a weird conclusion to jump to.
1: Yeah, what kind of business is are they in? Like, what kind of mafia deal are they going through? Where a torso is like, oh, dang, that must be my cousin.
0: Yeah, that's that's a bit extreme.
1: Very strange. So Alexander, the cousin, wondered if John had returned to the house on Carrick Avenue where he. His wife and stepdaughter had resided together for only a brief period of time. Strange as it seems, John and Evelyn had been married for almost a month before they began to re- reside together. She remained in an apartment with her mother and Heather, telling John that there wasn't enough room for all of them. Evelyn's mom wondered about Evelyn and John, all the while remembering the name Bill boh- Bohosnik, the man she believed that her daughter to be very much involved with, when Evelyn's perplexing marriage announcement was made. It was Evelyn herself who bought the Carrick Avenue home. John Dick's name was not on the mortgage. It's believed that he put none of the initial deposit money down. A few rocky months later resulted in John's departure. Evelyn was taken to police headquarters for questioning by Detective Sergeant Clarence Preston soon after the body was identified. What followed was astounding to investigators. Evelyn Dick responded to the news that the torso belonged to her husband by remarking, Don't look at me. I don't have anything to do with it. Then proceeded to tell a story about the Natalie dressed Italian hitman who arrived at her door looking for John. He said that he was going to fix him for messing around with his wife. He then left without telling Mrs. Dick who he was. So that's our story.
0: What a horrible, horrible story. Like completely <laughs> unbelievable.
1: If police bring you in for questioning and tell you that your husband's torso was found, the first thing you say is, Well, don't look at me, I don't know anything about it. That's that's not a good sign. At least act... No, you're
0: supposed to scream and then faint.
1: Yeah, at least yeah, especially in the twenties, faint or well, thirties. Like, you know, do something. To make yourself look convincing. Days later, police had learned that Evelyn borrowed a large Packard car from a man named Bill Langan. Langan received the car back with blood covering the front seat. The seat covers missing and bloody holding in the back. Evelyn left the note explaining that Heather had cut herself and made a mess. Investigation proved the blood to be the same type as John Dix. At this point, Evelyn told police that a mysterious man had called her and told her that John had made a woman pregnant and that he was going to get what was coming to him. The man then asked her to meet her so that he could borrow a car. Evelyn explained that she met the man and he had a large sack with him. He told her it contained part of John. Evelyn's story went on to say that she drove this man... And his cargo to the dumping site so even if her, even if her story is true she's now an accomplice to it she didn't she didn't call the police on this man she followed his directions and took him to dump the the remains
0: of the body right her story is getting worse and worse and more unbelievable every word she says it's just the more unbelievable it gets if, if and if her daughter cut herself badly, can she prove
1: that she took her to the hospital? Is there there any records of this? Any kind of doctor's notes?
0: Right for there to be blood all over this person's car
1: and bloody clothes in the back seat—that probably are male clothing.
0: Oh no! Like this is like Fast and Furious Eight, unbelievable. <laughs> like that's how unbelievable this story is. It has now become the fate of the furious. It, that's how unbelievable, like, it just couldn't happen.
1: Evelyn took police on the route she, that she claimed they followed. When asked if it was at all alarming to her that her husband's body was in the vehicle, she said that she wasn't happy about his demise, but that she was a pretty mean trick to break up a home. Referring evidently to the woman who Dick had allegedly impregnated. She empathetically de- denied conspiring to kill her husband. Evelyn's response at the meter were inappropriate. Psychiatrists found her to be on the borderline between having dull normal to moron-like intelligence. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, that was the shadiest
1: <laughs> the shadiest
0: that the report.
1: In addition, it was reported that she had a mental capacity of a 13-year-old girl, although this diagnosis was surprising to many who knew her to be an extremely intelligent and manipulative woman. Later, Evelyn changed her story again and signed a second statement regarding the involvement of Italian killers hired by Bill Bohoznik. She took police on another tour, explaining in some detail how the crime was committed including the location where John Dick was shot in the head on a muddy road near Glenfield, south of Hamilton. During all of this, investigators at Dick's home made the gruesome discovery, a beige suitcase in the attic trunk. The suitcase was filled with concrete, and the concrete were the remains of a baby boy born to Evelyn on September 5, 1944.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Now, Evelyn's mom told police that she had seen her husband at this trunk the day before and told him to get the hell out of the room. Faced with the turn of events, having been told that Bohoznik had been brought in for questioning, Evelyn told yet another story. She said that Bohoznik had murdered the child and Dick and Dick as well incriminating evidence such as a bullet hole in the pipe, a revolver, and cartridges, saws, and blood-stained shoes that were almost certainly John Dick's were found in her dad's basement. Evelyn Vohasnek and Donald, her dad, were charged with the murder of John Dick. Evelyn's trial power-served by the media and crowds turned up at the Hamilton Courthouse to catch a glimpse of the beautiful suspect. In her first trial, Evelyn Dick was represented by lawyer J.J. J. Sullivan and was found guilty of John Dick's murder. She was sentenced to death by hanging, although she, had, she may have not killed John with her own hands. Evelyn Dick was guilty by participating in the planning and carrying out the crime, which was enough to find her guilty of murder under the law. When a case was heard on appeal, the verdict was overturned because her second attorney, J.J. Robinett, skillfully argued that Evelyn's statement to the police were improperly admitted into evidence and the trial judge had not properly instructed the jury. Bill Bohosnick and Donald McLean were held for an unheard length of time before their joint trial was to take place. Boheznik walked because Evelyn, the only witness prosecutors had, refused to testify. Donald, on the other hand, was found guilty to being an accessory after the fact and sentenced to five years in prison. Evelyn was not so lucky. The police searched her home and found the mummified body of an infant boy encased in concrete in the suitcase in the attic. It was Evelyn's son, She was found guilty of manslaughter and the death of her infant son and sentenced to life in Kingston Penitentiary, where she became a model inmate. In 1958, Evelyn was paroled, and on November 10th, she was released from prison. In total, she served almost 13 years behind bars between Kingston and Hamilton. What happened to her after that was uncertain, and she has assumed a new name and started a new life in an unknown city. So in 1985, Evelyn was granted a pardon under the royal prerogative of mercy, which meant that she had no longer had to report to police or parole board, and her file was sealed forever. No one was ever convicted for the murder of John Dick. Damn. That was a turn of events there. So
0: That was a wild ride.
1: So she wasn't booked for John's death, but she was booked for killing her own infant child that was hers and John's.
0: So John got absolutely no justice.
1: John got no justice.
0: Even after those craptastic stories she was trying to spin.
1: Yeah, and somehow the other lawyer said, like, like argued the stories into her not getting hanged. That's crazy. Wow. So yeah, that is the story of Evelyn McLean's hyphen Dick.
0: Well, okay. Well, I will say my story has more of a justice of an ending. But I do want to say I don't care for this story for a lot of reasons. But the main reason is that there is very little info on the victim. Like, to me, that's sad because she's the one who lost her life. But every article focuses on the murderer and his backstory.
1: Ah, I see.
0: And, like, they, like, made it so sensationalized. Like, one little part of his life, they made it so sensationalized that it just kind of took on a life of its own, even though it really had Probably nothing to do with the murder, but I'll just uh, go ahead and get into the story and then I'll tell you where that's at when we get to it.
1: All right, ready?
0: So, born October 3rd, 1955, in Michigan, Karen Hatfield was one of four children. Her father, John, was an electronics executive, and her mother was a homemaker. Now, their family ultimately moved to Connecticut when Karen was in her teens. And that right there is pretty much all I could really find out about Karen, like, before she met her, you know, what would be her husband. And that's Richard Sharp. Now, he grew up in Shelton, Connecticut, which was like a small, old industrial city, and his parents were not well-to-do by any means. His father was reportedly extremely abusive towards him. Now, Sharp said his father was not abusive to his sister, so he started wearing her clothes as a defense mechanism. So in his mind if he dressed like his sister or dressed like a girl in general, his father would not be as abusive to him. And that's what he started to do in his teens.
1: Whoa. That's a strange way of thinking.
0: Yeah. So Karen and Richard met in high school, like after uh, they moved to Connecticut, after Karen's family moved to Connecticut, they met in high school and they fell in love. Shortly after graduating from Shelton High School, their daughter Shannon was born. And on September 1st, 1973, the teen sweethearts Richard and Karen got married. So that was basically like three months after they graduated high school. Now the marriage went downhill quickly. Karen soon flees to her aunt's house with um, the infant, Shannon, without telling Sharp her whereabouts. A few years later, Sharp imprisons Karen in their home for 48 hours straight and abuses her, and that's according to an affidavit she filed during later divorce proceedings. Um, She stated, quote, he accompanied me to the hospital, and while I was being treated, he whispered in my ear, I want you to die. Life for Karen and Shannon was rough and they were constantly hiding Sharp's abuse from everyone behind a facade of the perfect family. Now Sharp graduated from Harvard Medical School in 1985 and became a respected dermatologist. Despite the troubled marriage, they would have two more children, Michael in 1992 and Alexandria in 1995. Also in 95, Sharp founded a company called ClickMed that would later become Lay's Hair, the hair removal company that makes him millions. Now at that point, Sharp starts to have a lot of surgical procedures done on himself. He had upper his upper eyelids done, a blepharoplasty for loose skin, Neck lipo, which I didn't even know was a thing. Whoa. Love handle lipo, a rhinoplasty on his nose, and he used his laser hair removal expertise to permanently remove all the hair from his body. Now, in addition to this, his cross-dressing had developed into more than just a teenage defense mechanism. It was becoming his way of life. He said it relaxed him and he thought it was fun and also erotic. Now Karen accused Sharp of not only taking her birth control pills but also female hormone pills causing him to develop breasts. And this right here is kind of what the media went wild with. He was called like the cross-dressing killer, the transvestite killer. Like they really took the fact that he like to cross-dress and just ran with it and sensationalized it. And Karen just kind of got lost in the mix.
1: Wow. I see.
0: So around mid February, 2000 sharp transferred close to $3 million into an account that was only in Karen's name. And he did that to protect his and lays hairs liquid assets from liability. A few days later, Karen and their two minor children fled their home without telling Richard. Now, in court documents, Karen said she fled due to his constant verbal abuse and her fear for her physical safety. Now, during their 27 years of marriage, she was hospitalized more than once with a broken nose, split lips, black eyes, and pretty much all the rest of the abuse you can think of. Now, the next day after she left, she called and told him that she wanted a divorce. Karen soon moved into their house in Winham, Massachusetts, which was under construction. So at that point, he was still living in Connecticut and she moved into the house that they were having built in Massachusetts because it was kind of pretty much finished, but there was still some construction going on. On July 14th, 2000, Seeking relief from her ongoing divorce battles, Karen went out for a night of fun with family and friends. They took a moonlight cruise around Gloucester Harbor, and shortly before midnight, Karen returned to her home with her brother and his girlfriend. A 19 year old college freshman named Kristen Dormitzer was there because she was babysitting the children. Uh, Michael, who was then seven, and Alexandra, who was five. Then the doorbell rang. Karen answered the door, and it was Richard. What are you doing here, she asked. And then Richard shot her point blank in the chest with a high-powered 22-caliber rifle that he had taken from a friend's house that night. Wow. The sitter reportedly rushed the two children into the bathroom and put them in the tub to protect them from stray bullets. Her brother, Jamie, started to run after Sharp, but instead he went back to Karen and held her as he called 911. Karen died that morning, and Sharp was apprehended in New Hampshire in a dingy motel less than two days after the shooting. Now, the trial began... November 2001. Sharp played not guilty by reason of insanity, so the facts of the crime would not be disputed at trial. But Prosecutor Robert Weiner had to convince the jury that despite Sharp's oddities and instabilities, that he was sane when he killed his wife. Prosecutors alleged that Sharp planned the murder after Karen refused to return the $3 million he had transferred into her bank account after they separated. There were 3 million motives that Richard Sharp had for killing Karen, the assistant DA told the jurors. He was infuriated about the money. But Sharp claimed he was devastated when his marriage fell apart in February 2000 and he believed the marriage could be saved. He said he didn't remember much about the night he shot her in the chest, claiming he was temporarily insane. Now, ADA Warner dismissed this, saying Richard had parked his car 340 feet away from Karen's house, shut off the headlights, and walked up the long driveway with the gun. He reminded jurors that after shooting his wife, Richard disposed of the gun drove almost 50 miles to New Hampshire and rented a motel room. Quote, he wants you to think it was spur of the moment, so you'll think he was temporarily insane. And now he's not crazy anymore. How convenient. Which I must say, you know, he was at his friend's house with his then girlfriend. He took a rifle that was mounted on the wall took the ammo, and drove straight to that house. So, come on, you you can't, like, okay, I was temporarily crazy at the moment I pulled the trigger, but not before and not after. Yeah, no. So, after a three-week trial, the 12-member jury convicted Richard Sharp of first-degree murder, which has a mandatory sentence of life without parole. Sharp was sent to prison in 2002 where he tried to hang himself in his cell but this attempt failed in 2007 he went on trial for hiring a hitman to murder ada robert warner but he was acquitted which i wish i could have found some more information on that like how was he acquitted or how did they even figure that he had hired a hitman for this
1: yeah that sounds interesting
0: right But in January 2009, Sharp's cellmate found him hanging in his cell with bedsheets that were rigged up as a noose tied to the top of his bunk. After an investigation, officials found no reason to suspect foul play and ruled it a suicide. So, unfortunately, there are three kids without either parents now. Because he could not take her leaving.
1: That is, I, do you, like so. Do, so do you think? Do you think all this came from the the abuse he suffered as a child? Because um,
0: no. This, I mean, I I feel guy... like abuse does damage you in a way, but you cannot blame this all on abuse. I mean, they were together as teenagers. And he was abusive right from the jump. She had tried to leave and he threatened her. She had a restraining order, which, you know, as pretty much everybody but the justice system knows does not work. It's just a piece of paper. Like nothing really happens when you violate a restraining order until something like deadly happens to the person who had the restraining order. Like, that's when law enforcement cares.
1: And that usually happens to the the victims.
0: Right. They usually get a restraining order. The person continuously violates it and nothing happens. And then they kill who got the restraining order against them. And then law enforcement wants to do something about it.
1: What is up with our justice
0: system? I what don't know. What's really going it. on? It it definitely needs some tweaks. Hmm. But, you know, their daughter, of course, was like a lot older than her siblings because she was like already in her 20s when her brother was born. And she was like actually a, a laser tech at the Lays Hair facility.
1: A laser tech?
0: Yeah, like she was one of the techs that like ran the lasers. And Karen was actually like the admin person. Like, so they set him up in like um, strip malls because it was like kind of a portable laser type deal. Hmm. And so it was like set up in strip malls. So, you know, their older daughter was part of the business. Karen was part of the business and this like ended up making him millions. But again, like I said, all of this was just kind of swept under the rug when the bit about cross-dressing came up. Which is why I didn't so focus crazy. on Like, Karen, she had wrote many times that she didn't like it. Like, you know, that was one of her reasons for wanting to leave other than the abuse. Their older daughter, Shannon, said that he was abusive towards her as well when she was younger. Hmm. So, he had, like, a history of abuse. He didn't like to take no for an answer. And he was hopped up on pills, and booze, saw a gun mounted to the wall, and went and shot her.
1: Man. Yeah, I don't like your case either.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then end up killing himself, so. I mean, what's...
1: Coward to the bitter end.
0: Right. At least justice was served at first, and he did spend, you know, some years in jail, like seven years in jail. Yeah. But, you know, these, those two young children did not have a mother. No. Their father was taken away. So it's like, who really suffered? Exactly. So, how are we going to bring this up?
1: Well, I saw a news article That says that um, polio is officially not in Africa anymore.
0: Hot dog.
1: So that's good world news.
0: That is good world news. I'm glad things like that are still being eradicated.
1: Yeah. We can polio. Then that um, kill one of our presidents.
0: It didn't kill him, but I think it crippled him, Teddy Roosevelt.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Only only crippled.
0: He had it as a as a child.
1: And that's a a good underdog story. Like, you know, even if you're born with polio, you can still become a president one day. And Ted Roosevelt was a good president, to my knowledge.
0: Uh, Didn't he start the CIA? Did he? I, I don't know. I feel like it was him. Let's, let's ask the oh. almighty Google.
1: It says, it says he was recruited to CIA. Oh, Kurt, oh, Kermit.
0: Harry Truman. That it was President Truman. President Truman, okay. Wow, it was only like in 1946. So they really haven't even been around for 80 years yet. That's crazy. That so is much,
1: crazy. So much more so much more of a technology to do for them.
0: Wow. Well, so, that was
1: my, my attempt, which where we got for us.
0: Um, I'm going to do some experimental cooking today with some lotus root, and I'm quite excited about that.
1: That sounds very fancy.
0: We'll see how it turns out, but I am... Optimistic. Also, I'm going to like uh, Ruth, who you have known for pretty much your whole life, who's been my BFF slash adopted sister for twenty some odd years. Came over the other night, and I like just went to the store. So you know, background: Ruth is Korean. I just went to the store and bought like all this Korean stuff because I love Korean food and Ruth and her family like kind of showed up out the blue and I was like hey you should really cook because I just bought all this stuff to make all these Korean dishes and she did and it was spectacular and now I'm like on this Asian kick where I got to go make some more what she made minus the meat and with some lotus root because she said her mom used to make it but I don't I don't remember having lotus root at their house but we're going to try and see what happens.
1: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. That sounds great.
0: It was Ruth is a good cook when she really wants to cook. Like she made bulgogi ribs and some uh what are those things called? bean sprouts. Bean sprouts. Yeah, but like she made them like the Korean way and then like it was just it was all fantastic. She knows I love it and I have like other stuff. But I was like, you know, I'm not going to make you cook like all this stuff. That's that's rude. You just came <laughs> over here to to surprise me and I got you in the kitchen cooking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was nice. I got to spend time with my godkids and eat some good food.
1: There you go. Sounds sounds like a great end, to, great end of a day to me.
0: Oh yeah, it was wonderful. And I will definitely have to let you know how this lotus root turns out because I'm excited. I've never had it before, I don't think.
1: Yeah, please do. And I'm sure you'll uh, upload pictures. So if anyone is on our We Should Talk About This Facebook page, whenever Key uploads something on there, just go to her page and check out her yummy food pictures.
0: Actually, my page is private.
1: Oh.
0: Gotta keep the weirdos away. But I will upload it to the group and to... The Insta, which is WStat underscore pod.
1: All right. So we got it on our WStat underscore pod Instagram and our Facebook page. And it may even be hyperlinked from our Twitter page. We should talk about this. WStat underscore pod.
0: <laughs> yes. And we do follow back. So if you follow us on either Twitter or Instagram, we will definitely follow you back. We believe in follow back. Yeah.
1: Ain't no follow back, girl. But we are. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was a nice way to end these horrible stories. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. So, with that being said, I'm Keith. And I'm V and this is been we shouldn't talk about this
1: thanks for listening
0: bye